welcome to Sends and Suffers Podcast. I am your host, Mario Stanley. Let's get into it. Today on the show, we have Tiffany Hainsley. Tiffany and I actually really got plugged in on a trip to Mexico. I was going to go climbing. Partner had a situation, didn't show up. So uh, I connected with her a few months prior on Facebook with an organization that she's partnered up with called Escalante Pantadas, which basically means climbing borders. Uh, I'm going to let her get into telling you why that program is so awesome. But this conversation is really just two good friends catching up and really hearing about what she is doing and how she is trying to make a world a better place. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear this conversation. Uh, there is a lot of knowledge dropped. So there's going to be pretty dense show notes. So feel free to dive in and do some homework. I'll see you guys on the other side. The whole point of Sends and Suffers, honestly, is I want to have conversations with my friends because I think I have awesome friends like you. You've and, got a lot um, of friends, Mario. Yeah, you know everybody. I wouldn't say I know everybody. I think I've just been around long enough to like, mm -hmm. as I like to call like the kids say I'm old as for a climbing coach because I am the oldest <laughs> climbing coach that works for us uh, at Summit. You don't, but, uh, you don't act like it. <laughs> Uh, good. You've got good. that useful enthusiasm. You're like, oh my God, let's go do this thing. And I'm like, he's somewhere in his 20s, maybe? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't no. know. But I call myself you a stegosaurus uh, with the kids. And the kids are just like, oh. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. The stegosaurus was like, like T Rex was way, 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 way after me. Like, way, way after me. I'm like a true dinosaur. And, <laughs> you know, but. In all, in all reality, rock climbing is a young man's game. If you're going to play at the real high end of it, I'm not saying I'm that old, but you know, I, well, I think I just, I've been around for long enough. And uh, I, for myself, so that's what I would say. But. Well, well, one side of the discipline is a young man or woman's game, right? Like bouldering mm -hmm. is what we think of now these days is rock climbing, but really there's like this whole evolution, this whole spectrum from bouldering to sport, to trad, to multi-pitch, to alpine, and then mixed, right? Like, and then yeah. you can't put a young individual on a big mountain because they just don't have like the mental fortitude experience. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, unless the, unless that's what they were gunning from from the very beginning, but right, I think they're raised that way. Yeah. Like I had a, a friend, one of my biggest mentors, actually, uh, he started off being brought up like the Grand Capucin in the Alps. And then oh, wow. and then later on became like a really hard 14B sport climber, like in his mid 20s, back when that was the hardest grade and like did the absolute opposite. Um but he's also young at heart. Like he's, he's somebody who's like, just like you, like super high energy and it doesn't really matter what he does. But, uh, I think it's, I think it's very much in that, in the mind until it comes to bouldering. Yeah. Bouldering is a young person sport. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, also let's just be honest. Like that's why bouldering does really well at like nationals or events. It, it's a showy sport. I mean, it's like, I always call it like, if you remember climbing here at Dallas, at the Dallas location, I always call that the peacock gym. It's like where everyone goes to strut their feathers because there's so many boulder problems. And it's it was a it's an arena, and that's really what that gym was built for. But like you know, train at all the other gyms, but like you go to you go to Summit Dallas, that's where the peacocks are. They're out there having fun. They got the boys are strutting <laughs> oh their feathers, wearing skin 
wearing lacy little tank tops. That's it. That's yeah, like, I mean, that's how I was raised in one of those <sighs> kind of in that atmosphere. I guess. So we started, right? Should I introduce myself? Because oh yeah, yeah, we're just like going ham okay. in this. Okay, yeah, yeah. So Tiffany, tell the world who you are. And yeah. I guess how we know each other. Yeah, this was a great segue because uh, I came across that whole spectrum. So I'm Tiffany Hensley. Um, I started climbing when I was seven. Uh, my my mom asked me, like, you know, if you want to do something really good in your life, you should start now. And I was I was like, that's the weirdest question in the world. But I would totally be a rock climber. And then strangely enough, like I that's all I've done since then. So I've been climbing for over 20 years. I started off in a climbing gym and was definitely kind of like a peacock. It was, it was like you go to the gym and you don't go outside very much, but or like I did it, and you would just see the other climbers and be like, ooh, wow. He's like, that person is a really good climber, you know, and really showy. And then you'd want to emulate that, copy them, or like do your own thing. Um, and then – I evolved over the past 20 years to go more into sport climbing. Uh, I was very competitive and I was kind of like defined by that. That was my identity was as like a, a, a peacock or like a greyhound that just like competes and doesn't do anything else. Um, okay. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know that because when I went to, when I moved to Colorado, I made a lot of new friends and some, some knew me from the competition scene, but when I started off, like since I was seven years old until I moved and I was 18, I would be in the bouldering gym or the climbing gym like all day. Like if I wasn't in school or if I wasn't reading a book, I was in the climbing gym every single day with a pair of climbing shoes on. I never even took them off, which is probably why I have bunions. And <laughs> and I, I have terrible bunions and and climbers make fun of me for that but i no, i mean I, climber's toe is a thing like i think if you've been climbing long enough like you just have to admit that you're gonna have some fugly toes just a little bit like it's just it's the way it's gonna go i think the games are well worth the sacrifice i think so yeah and the body is it adapts surprisingly i mean i was wearing those shoes that you had to like you had to pull really hard for like five minutes to get the climbing shoe on and that's not good for your feet, you know, to be wearing that walking around climbing like all day as a as like a de- growing, developing child whose I mean, growth plates are still, you know, forming. I mean, binding of the feet has kind of been around for quite a while. I mean, at least it's like ru- rubber, it's stretchy, you get to take it off and then, you know, they're not like breaking your toes and putting it in, uh, you know, a small little you know, wooden shoe. I mean, you know, it's been around so yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, it, it it goes back, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it. I didn't really feel that much pain in my feet, so I guess that's okay. Um, yeah. And yeah, and the body just adapts. Yeah, as a kid. So, so okay, so you're competition climber, and yeah, now meeting new people in Colorado. Yeah, so I, I should probably briefly go over that ten years span of comp- of competing because that was like that defined me so much. I like, I, yeah, when I went to Colorado, I met these people I competed with, including like briefly, like Emily Harrington, Alex Puccio and Paige Clawson, uh, Sasha DeJulian, although she wasn't living there, but you know, there's like the scene and you bump into mm-hmm. people. Um, but I had competed with them in, 
uh, like the World Cup in Vail. I don't remember if, if you went, ever went to the Vail games, but there was always the IFSC Bouldering World Cup. And it was like the only one in the U.S. And we loved competing in it because the Europeans didn't want to pay the money to fly all the way over to the U.S. and compete. <laughs> they had all their own their own world circuit. And so like all the Americans would show up and like do pretty well and be all proud of ourselves. And then like if any if anybody from Europe came over and competed, we'd just get completely smashed. But that didn't happen until like after I kind of stopped competing. So like 2008, I got it was my first World Cup and it was like when I started get more getting more sponsored by like Prana and different companies and I did fourth and I was like wow like this can't really get any better like this is amazing uh I was like training super hard for it my whole life was just about climbing and training and being the best uh, like I grew up in the gym where Chris Sharma started and he'd be in all the time and he would like know people's name and say hi to me. And I'd be like, Oh my God, like I want to be the strongest climber ever. Um, and so then when I, w- I would train my whole year, like in school doing pushups behind the counter in chem class and then go to like the world cup and compete and then go through that cycle of like, um, always training for the next competition. And then I went to, the North American Continental Championships, and by some stroke of luck, I won against Emily Harrington and Paige Clausen, who are like, without a doubt, better climbers than I am. But I was, and I was, un, I was training very unsustainably, like making all the classic mistakes, not eating enough, and and not being very balanced. Um, so that was like my peak, and that got me invited to the World Games, and that was like a really big shift for me because that was like the peak of my competition career and getting to go to the world games, which is like a little sister of the Olympics. And then getting to see what like the best in the world looked like, like Pachi Usubiaga and, uh, and like Sean McCall, I think was there and some of the best climbers. Um, but that was also when I left high school, like I flew, I basically graduated, went to that event, came back to the U S and I was like, I just didn't really care that much about competitions. I was like, I have just competed so hard. I spent my whole life doing that. Now I want to see what the real world looks like. And like, you know, go to do the college experience, move to Boulder, um, be on my own, you know, like I've, I've been super sheltered, uh, like a greyhound or like a peacock, like I said. And, and then I like, so I go to Boulder and thinking like, this is the place where Dave Graham is like bouldering at cats and like all these climbers have come out like Christian Griffith and Alex Puccio was living there. Um, and I was just so focused by, like this idea of being part of the climbing scene and learning more. Um, Even though I still had my, my head stuck in the climbing gym and I was still a peacock and I just like, it opened my world. As soon as I got to Colorado, um, I remember walking into the spot bouldering gym and seeing Alex Puccio, like with her tank top, just super ripped. Like the first thing I see walking through the door is, her finishing this like super hard boulder problem and mantling on this like uh like font and boot 
Fontainebleau slab looking thing. It looks super hard. And I was like, oh my God, I have arrived to the land of giants. <laughs> you know, like I <laughs> came awesome. from, I came from this town that was like, there's a very small circle and not of people climbing and not many women. And then when I competed, I was always like the best in my category, like the nationals and be like pretty good. But then when I came to Boulder, it was like, bam, like I wasn't good compared to everybody else. And there's so much to learn from. So it kind of like, I don't know, it kind of, it was like super competitive and I became less so. Uh, I would like still compete, but then I would kind of not take it too seriously and was kind of more interested in the outdoors. And I would just show up at a competition and get on the U.S. team and and be like, how did I get here? <laughs> like, I'm next to An- like Angie Payne. Like, Angie Payne is this amazing female climber. She's the, oh, one yeah. of the first woman. Yeah, I, I yeah. religiously watch her on YouTube. Like, she's, you know, I say this, like, with an, and if she's ever listens to this podcast, with all due respect, like, you were, you were a woman amongst giant women. But, you know, when you first look at her, I'm like, oh, she's she doesn't look like she's this ultimate crazy crusher and you watch her climb and you're like, holy shit. And that's like totally like the thing that happens with, uh, with most men, I think in general, looking at women climbing back then. Cause this is like, I started watching her stuff years ago when she first started putting it up. And now this is not the case. Like now it's totally different. Like, you know, I expect a lot of women to be crushers just because, you know, it's just so common nowadays. It's the way, and I think that's the way it needs to be, but you know, but, uh, you know, she is very impressive to watch rock climb. It's, uh, it's definitely a treat. Yes. And moving into the subject of women, I did want to mention and like preface this, that I've been trying to follow the transgender non-binary, um, LGBTQ to a plus kind of, um, uh, progressive movement. And I do want to say, when I say her, she, his, him, those are people who have established their, their gender. And Mm -hmm. I, I associate myself as her, she, um, and I'm just learning this. So if I make any social gaffes or if I'm not being inclusive in my language, I just want to say, sorry, I'm learning. Um, I had, I actually had this really interesting experience. Have you heard of, uh, do you know of, a Maricelo Rosales. I know the like, name. Okay. Like what I, when I'm talking during this podcast, I'm going to try to name drop as much as possible. Like with yeah, these cool. people. I mean, who are, educate the audience. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like educate me sorry. and the audience. I, you know, yeah. Yeah. These people are just so much a part of like who I am, like what I focus on is like trying to be a social an advocate for social justice, specifically for at-risk youth. But I mean, it shouldn't be limited. Uh, and I've also tried to like, as just a regular climber, kind of dirt bag, you know, whatever, just try to like integrate that into my daily life. So, so Maricela Rosales, actually, like, like if you, you know that I've, or I should explain, I have done a lot of work in Mexico and I'll get to that. Um, but I was really interested in like the Spanish speaking side of the climbing community and bringing resources that exist in the U.S. for Spanish speakers to places like Mexico and uh, Spanish speaking countries like Latin America. So I met Maricela through Madrid Climbing when I was working with them as a team manager. And she was one of our athletes, ambassadors. And she's this amazing individual. She's currently a kind of advocate and 
figure for Latino Outdoors, which is an amazing organization. Bringing- yeah, I've heard of them before. They're, uh, yeah, yeah, and it's awesome. Actually, yeah. no, I do know who, never mind. I do know who you were talking about. I've met her at OR when OR was happening. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes, she's hard to miss. She's really loud and really funny and really like has an amazing personality. And I, she, I think she's, she's definitely spoken in quite a few uh, events as well. Um, she, I think, yeah, I've, I've bumped into her all over the place. Uh, she's, she was a part of shift. I don't know if you've, yep. Yep. I am. I know those guys. Yeah. Adventure for conservation or something like that, or conservation through adventure, uh, which promotes emerging leaders in shifting the paradigm of the outdoor industry to be more progressive. Uh, look that up. It's super cool. And, and so when I met her, she was like, talking about her history and talking so passionately that you could, I could tell that she was really digging. She digs deep. And so she just recently had an article come out talking about Latino outdoors and her own, uh, well, more specifically her own history, but also being very sensitive to her language. And when she writes Latino outdoors, now there's an X in Latino. I think that comes from like, um, Kendry, what's his name? Kendry, Ibram Kendry, Kendry Ibram. Uh, How to be anti-racist, that author. Also a great oh, book. Oh yeah, I have not read that book. Oh my gosh, just, this is what I recommend. Go to like Google Books and just read the preview. Just read the free sample. Because I know everybody's like trying to absorb things in little chunks these days. And they don't want to jump into buying the book. But I... I read a little bit of that when I had a brief conversation with her recently and I was like, okay, I'm starting to get this. Uh, like, I think if everybody in the community just read the opening part, that's free uh, on Google books or wherever, then it would give them a really good start to understanding like how to, how our language is progressing to be more inclusive and more sensitive. Um, so, so yeah, so Maricela, actually, she's been a huge influence on me because of the way that she uses her own story and her, her personality to kind of be able to speak on these about social justice, about uh, gender roles and gender inclusivity or, or non-binary people. Um, and, and yeah, she, I just had to name drop her. Um, if you wanted to follow her, I can't remember her, her handle, but I'll look it um, up and put it in the show notes. So we'll make sure everybody has it. Yes. She is super cool. We've collaborated a couple of times, um, because she's fluent in Spanish and yeah. And what did we translate? Uh, we translated this, this is like what I do. We, We like get on these collaborations with small projects for Spanish speaking, youth and climbers uh, in the U.S. and in the Americas. And her and I, we worked on this translation of The Pact, which I don't know if you remember the Black Diamond and Access Fund collaboration where they brought those athletes out to do cleanups. At oh, the yeah, area. I do. It was, yeah. uh, what was that, about a, a year or two ago? A couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. They had like Hazel Finlay and Alex Honnell, Joey Kinder. It's got to be like three years ago. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so she and I, we translated this, um, the whole pact, all the graphics and everything and access fund was super amazing. And they, they did the graphics with the translation and then I got that and I passed on to access Pan Am, which is the, 
name dropping again. This is the sister organization to Access Fund that exists for all of Latin America, which is kind of a big area. And oh. I've, they're an amazing organization. They have very few people for what they do, but they work with directors in different countries. And if you're a rock climber traveling to anywhere in Latin America and you're interested in community work in the climbing area, in development, in building bathrooms, you know, getting shit done, um, just go to their website and check out the programs that they're doing, the, the projects. Um, they've got an English, Spanish, and Portuguese because it's based in Brazil, but they work in like Chile and Peru and Argentina. And if any climber wants to have like a, a sustainable trip where they're like minimizing their footprints and getting involved in the community, you know, and bringing down bolts, then that's a great place to start and be like, oh, if I wanted to go to Torres del Paine, they're building bathrooms and I can like, you know, pitch in some money so that when I'm, you know, sh- <laughs> I don't know if I could, what I can say on the podcast, but you can say like, whatever sh- you want. Okay. Well, while I'm, while I'm shitting in like literally on Torres del Paine, I am also like helping that project that's helping to keep it clean <laughs> and having, <laughs> and, you know, doing good shit. And it feels good to do that. And that's like my whole thing. That's what I love to do. Uh, to go down to these places and like really get involved. Um, so yeah, so we did this collaboration. We got these graphics. We shared them with Access Pan M, and then I also printed them out and locally was doing it in Mexico where I was living for several years and was like going around to all the gyms and putting up these graphics. You know, like the pact is so the pact is a campaign about uh, promising to take care of our climbing area to to have sustainable access, to use leave no trace ethics. And that kind of standard or campaign, like we don't have the resources to do that in places like Mexico and a lot of other places in Latin America. And so something like that, they access fund could just, you know, grind it out, make the graphics. And we found a good translator and then we throw it out to access Pan Am and all these different networks and then they've got something to work with. It's like one more tool for them to be more sustainable in their community because these communities don't have that many resources. So, so that was super cool. Um, and I can, talk awesome. more, I can talk more about Mexico. I can uh, Actually, real quick, actually, since yeah. I think you kind of hinted towards it, like I don't think people know that you're fluent Spanish speaking. So I don't know if there's like a little shout out or a message you want to give. If anybody is Latino listening to this, so you oh can kind of go for it. Go just, just I mean, have at it. They'd have to be bilingual because you know they'd have to get through, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes of this. Yeah, um, so there's, some, there's, yeah. Some, there's something short. Just say hello. Yeah, to to the kids in uh, Esclavo Fronteras that I worked with and still work with, I can tell them that they are awesome and they inspire me and that I, I'm i really excited to bring them to the U.S. I'll just say that now. Eh, hola, chicos de Esclavo Fronteras. No manches, estoy en este podcast y es, espero que estén escuchando. Si no, les voy a mandar para que tienen que escuchar. Y, y me encanta conocer ustedes, me inspiran. Y espero que vienen a los Estados Unidos pronto. Y nos vemos pronto en México. Yeah, thank you. That's They're going to be so psyched to hear that. <laughs> <Be> like, <laughs> like, awesome. you're on a, yeah, so I've, 
I don't know. Do you want to start with questions or should I just jump uh, into well, it? I do. I, I, I do. I want to let you run with it because I think it's also really important for people to kind of know like what you're doing and everything. But I do want to back up to something that you said actually earlier when you're talking about your, you know, your tenure and climbing stretch. Um, and I think this is something that's important that, that I think will relate to, you know, climbers just in general, but you said you were on top of the world when you took fourth place. And I think sometimes, you know, and this is just coming from a coaching perspective, kind of like talking about climbing again, that people get so wrapped up in ascend and so wrapped up in like trying to get to the top of everything that I think what they realize, what they forget to embrace is the suffer, the, the training, everything that you're going for it and getting to where you're getting. Uh, and so, yeah, that's just something that just stood out to me that you said. And I don't think people really... I don't think people enjoy where they are. And you just said that you did. So I'd like to hear a little bit about that. Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, so my, I th- I think you're right, Mario, that my headspace where I was at was um, kind of like you said, I wasn't really enjoying where I was for the most part. And then I'd feel like I'm on top of the world briefly. Um, but then I would, I would actually, I'll, I'll be honest, I would go into a depression after these big events, because everything I'd worked for was over. I had to start again. I didn't see the friends that I saw like once or twice a year because I would just train on my own um, or be reading a book, but otherwise I wouldn't see them. Um, And then I would also like put my body through the grinder at that time and I wasn't eating well. So then afterwards in the recovery phase, I should have been eating a lot more, moving around, but I didn't do a lot of cardio and didn't eat enough. So I ended up kind of emotionally spiraling downwards after like a nationals or world cup in like March or, or May. And those would be like, this is about highs and lows. I was emotionally very high and then very low throughout that entire time. Um, Do you think that it changed your relationship with climbing throughout the years? And especially when you finally got out of the competition circuit on your own, like, you know, building up to a big project, did you notice like mentally? Cause I mean, if that was your, you know, habits or patterns for the, you know, better part of 10 years, has that stuck with you? And is that something that you found to be a strength, sorry, a strength or a weakness? Good question. I think what was a strength from that was learning to work super hard towards a big goal and not depending on like somebody else to, to kind of help me get there and just knowing that it's possible. Um, but I think it was overall very harmful in the long run that my mentality was that I could do things alone and I did not enjoy the process with others and learn as much from others. So my mistakes just kept reoccurring. My emotional lows just kept happening over and over until it was just normal. And like what I do now differently and what I realized is that I got, I definitely got burned out on the competition scene because my worth was attached to how well I did. And I got to a point where I was getting injured and that meant I was a terrible climber, which wasn't true. But I, I mean, I could have worked with a trainer. I could have shared information with my fellow climbers, but I would be embarrassed to talk about my injury because that's like a sign of weakness. Um, or they would just tell me to stop climbing and that's not what I wanted to do. <clears throat> so, so overall, I've changed a lot more to where I kind of dip into that 
um, experience when I want to train hard on my own. Um, and I know that I need to, if I want to achieve some of my goals, but I have definitely changed overall where I try to go to those people. I know that have more experience than me and look at them as mentors and as coaches, uh, and as friends and say like, Hey, I had this injury, this tweak, this thing, you know, like right as it's happening so that I can learn from that and not repeat my mistakes. Um, but also, like, I, I didn't talk about my mental and spiritual side. Like, there's a couple of great podcasts by uh, climbing psychologists who talk about, like, the four legs of the table. You've got, like, strength training, um, mental training, and then there's, like, a psychological and spiritual side to it. Um, I'm not sure if I got those right. But basically, if you don't have all four of those, you're not a very stable or consistent athlete. And I was training strength so much without talking to anybody about the psychological side of, of like, am I imagining success? You know, that's like classic sports psychology. Um, or am I just, um, or am I just throwing myself into this training and not like thinking about, um, how to keep my spirits up and listen to my body and, know it feels right to me in a more wholesome way. I, I feel like I can't be more specific because I was yeah, no, no, I mean that time. that definitely kind of like what I was very curious about. Cause like, you know, the patterns that you set up as a kid, you know, like, you know, if you've heard of like thought maps before in your brain, like these, like your experiences through life set your patterns. Like these are gonna happen. This is what it is. And and when the way I understand it best is like the experiences through life allow your brain to quickly check yes, no to certain situations. It's not like I had a shitty life growing up, so I make shitty decisions. It's more of like, this is just my decision map of like, when a, when this particular situation arises, this is, uh, I, all right, I'm, my brain is automatically going to check yes or no to these boxes. And then it helps you speed through the decision process. And, you know, when you identify things like this, it's really hard to like change the way that your brain makes decisions so you can start having you know, a little shift in your different and a different outcome um you know so kind of segueing into another question that i have for you is you know you brought up a story about alex puccio and you walked into the gym uh and you saw her and she's you're just like holy shit giants monk giants like you know you've reached the promised land and i think a <laughs> right, thing yeah. that's really funny is it's like I would say around that same time, I don't know. What what year was that, would you say, when you moved there? That was 2010. 2010. Wow. Okay, a decade ago. So, yeah, yeah I would <laughs> say around that time, like, you know, in – I'd say for the climbing scene, that's right when like a lot of women, as you say, were like really stepping up. Women were really kind of like taking – like women were taking more charge of climbing and sending hard shit and doing that. They were just getting absolutely no recognition in any way, shape or form, which is bullshit. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it was, it was undeniable. Like at that point in time, like, you know, like, like this is undeniable. They're sending hard, they're doing great things. They're climbing great things and they're doing great feats. And it reminds me of like guys in Texas. And I can't tell you how many times I've had the conversation in the gym where guys will be talking in a group. And then they will say something about a boulder. A girl even climbs it or a girl, they talk about it or they'll say, don't climb like a girl or whatever. But it's happened, still happens now. And I can't tell you how many times I turn around and look at guys and I'm like, you know, like the best climber to ever come out of Texas is a woman. 
and they all look at me and they're like, who, <laughs> who, who? And I say Alex Puccio. Uh, and the people who know who she is all look at this person and they look at me. And this person who, yeah, they're new to climbing. They probably don't know. They're Gumby or they come in from another sport that's just, you know, super, super male dominated. And mm-hmm. and they just have this like look. And I love it because the moment that everybody else who is actually who is actually a rock climber looks at this person and they all look, they're immediately like, oh, there is something that I do not know. And right. I love it. And yeah. so, you know, you, how do you feel about this now? Like, I, I freaking love it. I think, you know, it's great. It's like, everyone needs to rock climb. I understand that like some people have, you know, some people are like, you know, less people in rock climbing is better. Don't grease my holds. Don't do whatever. But I'm, I'm all for this. And I, I just want to know, like, what has been the biggest uh, what has been the biggest thing that you've noticed from the perspective of a woman? I mean, outside of this, more women being into the sport. Yeah, that's a great question, Mario. Uh, yeah, because I've noticed a lot just because I've been climbing for so long in this in the past, like over the past 20 years. Um, I've noticed a lot more female climbers. Um, but also there's a, there's a gender gap. Or I mean, if we want to recognize genders, there's a gender gap in sports, in different sports, right? And it gets, as the sport progresses and there's, there's more acknowledgement and more encouragement for women in those sports, we learn that that gap closes very quickly. And there's simply, I don't know what, well, we know why because of marketing, because the demographic is majority, you know, consider it's, if it's a male dominated sport, the demographic uh, will, the marketing will target that and you'll have a white male in all of the advertisements because they are doing the ice climbing and the, the hard this and that. But uh, yeah, I would say that what I've noticed most of all is that the women who have set the standards aren't as widely recognized. And I think that's in part to our hesitation in taking the initiative to, you know, I, I, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but no, say, I mean, say it like, I mean, say it like it is. I mean, that's the beauty of yeah, this show. We, I mean, and podcast in general. Yeah. So we, we don't really want it. And when I say we, I just mean some women in sports, people who, um, identify as women, they just don't want to be selling themselves as much, or there just aren't as many. And those that are out there, we feel very, I'll talk from my own experience. I have felt very intimidated across the board. And I do have that drive. That's like, I want to be the first woman to do this. I want to be, uh, I want to show the boys up, which is really, it's a really great feeling when I go in. Um, especially if I can like kind of represent my like people who identify as women um but so for example if we look at the first woman to do 514 who was arguably uh maybe not sasha de julian but was a spanish woman um that spanish woman she sent it like 20 years ago and nobody in the u.s could tell you about that remember who is this i don't even know who this is who is this yeah so spanish female climber I'm typing this in first. Oh, I can hear it. No one cares. Like, like this is, <laughs> okay. this is juicy. So let's give so, the goods. So Jason Berequiartu Uruzola, Uruzola. She is, I'm pretty sure from the Eastern side and like Catalan, maybe. Um, she's known for being the first woman to climb 8C or 514B. 
8C plus and 9A, which I believe that one has a slash grade, like 14CD, um, and 9A, 9A plus roots. So like this was, let's see, well, her birthday is close to mine. Um, this was like back in, shoot, she was born in 72. Um, like 2002, she did the 14D uh, Le Bande de Sang, The Bath of Blood, uh, in Switzerland. Uh, had its first ascent by Fred Nicole. It was the third 9A route in the world. And Holy I didn't shit. know about this, right? Like, stuff like that, I'm just like, why, you know? But what I understand is that, you know, if you are raised in a society that will tell you go take the initiative go make money man you know like specifically because this is like between dudes like go do that thing you should you know be tough and good after it um then that society is encouraging that person who are mostly men to get those sponsorships go give these presentations it was boosting them up with confidence which is something we should see as much on the side for women and people who I don't identify with, uh, who are non-binary, and we don't see that. And I have also, I did an interview with Mar Alvarez. She's also from Spain. She was the fifth woman to climb 9A, and she had, she was a perfect example of this. She had zero sponsors, and zero. She was a firefighter. She, that was like her training. She built her own little home wall, and, oh, wow. and she was the fifth woman to do 9A. And she did a little video for sponsorships. And she was like, okay, maybe, you know, I want to get paid for this. But then realized, like, it doesn't pay. For women, it, it just, the pay is such a big difference. And the companies did not want to take her on and give her what she was asking for, which would be like a reasonable uh, amount for her to live as an athlete. And she stuck with her career and she stopped climbing it. She hit 9A and she's like, all right, cool. Like, I, if I can't make money like this, I'm just going to do my own thing. Oh my um, gosh. So does she still yeah. rock climb? I'm, I mean, I'm pretty sure she does. <laughs> well, I, hopefully, I found out about at least this. for the love of rock climbing. But that's like infuriating yeah. because, I mean, <laughs> if you're that good and, you know, to a certain extent, especially back then, in my opinion, like climbing brands really only gave they only gave two shits about you if you climbed hard. And that was it. Like climb hard grades. You can we can take cool pictures. I think, you know, in all reality, where they drop the ball is and this, this is just outdoor brands in general. I'm not going to like pin climbing brands here is like they didn't really care about people in general. I think they wanted like just climb hard. And even when she met the criteria back then. And from what I perceived it to be, they're just like, no. And I think at least now they're getting more genuine. Now they're actually wanting people who have lives, people who have stories, people actually who are just more relatable. Like, you know, someone you would actually just meet. Um, and I'm not saying she's not that person. But when you think of a pro climber, that's what you think about. They're almost like untouchable. They're like this, you know, as we said, giant. And it, I don't know, it's just it's frustrating because like, OK, well, like all the boxes are checked. Oh, you're, right. you're, you're, you're a female. So, you know, or maybe it was not even that, you know, what, you know, it's, I was talking to a friend about, you know, not to kind of talk about the current climate that's going on with black lives matter and racist behavior. You know, I was talking to a friend, he was like, 
what you know what about this whole thing you know do you find scary or what is the like the, what is the one thing that brings in mind this whole thing is bringing to mind for you and i told him i was like you know the one thing that stands out to me is like someone who's openly racist or openly against me i'm cool with that because you know you know where you stand but the person who's the most scary is a prejudiced person someone who will hide it and who's just laughing in your face where you won't let you move up you know or someone who has those bias and they just don't give a shit you know, hopefully if they don't know that they have those bias and they find out they are remorseful, but I guarantee you, it was probably one of those situations where it's like, oh, this letter comes in. She's a woman. Uh, no one's really going to, no one's going to pay attention to this and you just throw it off. And, and that's probably what happened, totally. you know? And it's like, it's just, it's sad that like it's enraged. It's actually, it just, you should be more mad than sad, but it's a mix of the both that it's like, it was either that or Oh, this is a girl. No one's going to pay attention to this at all. And even though the, the answer is the same, doesn't matter what tone it comes from. And I don't know. It's just I'm happy that the day I'm happy that those days are in the past and we're looking forward into the future. And I think it's going to be much, much, much better where everybody has an opportunity to, you know, if you're do, if you put the work in you and this is the career path you're going for, you know, you haven't you have a shot to get there. Uh, and I think that's becoming more so that way but uh right yeah i mean in the u.s yeah yeah i i totally agree mario like it's because we're making noise about this and we're more aware of it there's more conversation that it is definitely looks like it's gonna progress but you are also right that the people who are the scariest are the ones that have that prejudice and they don't acknowledge it and that's actually something really interesting that i learned recently the last time i went down to mexico uh, and talked to the, the one of the founders of the program i worked with she's a professor at the university there in monterrey mexico she has a phd in child psychology and she's just a, this amazing woman and Did I meet I her when I was down there? I met her when I was down there that day that we we went up and visited the kids. Probably, yeah. She's this kind of shorter. Uh, she's very fair skinned because <laughs> yes, I think she yes. has. I have a photo of all four of us standing next to your van. Yes, awesome. I want I want that photo. I don't know okay, if I have I think that I photo. Said, uh, yeah, I'll look for it. I'll find it. I'm, I know I have it. Oh, I was going okay. through the photos that you took of us and I was like, oh, cool. But I didn't see that one. I was like, oh, OK, maybe it's somewhere deep in my computer. But yeah, so Dr. Nadia Vasquez was if we want to move into the like equity, diversity, inclusivity. Yeah, uh, well, let's actually can you talk about uh, Escalante Fronteras, like what you were doing down there or that that's what it's called, isn't it? Right. Yes. I'll, okay. I will. I'll, yeah, I'll finish uh, what I was saying about her because that's a really good way to, to start off. She so, yeah, Escalante Fronteras is basically it was founded by these two people, one, an American climber who had been traveling and, and studying in Sweden and had uh, worked in Mexico City with drugs and with the, the UN and then lived and worked in Argentina. So he had a very worldly outlook on things. And the other one was Dr. Nadia Vasquez, who is a she was doing her. Uh, PhD in Mexico, where the program's based in Monterrey. And she's a professor. And he approached her about this idea of using climbing as a tool for uh, getting kids out of gangs. And that was part of his thesis where he was studying in Lund, Sweden. Um, So she was like, who is this crazy guy coming out of nowhere who wants to work with like 
you know, gangs and, and child soldiers um, and just wants to start like rock climbing with these kids um, because she is not a climber herself. And so she came to this project that they, they created this pilot project with a very like scientific perspective as a, like knowing the human behavior, child psychology, destructive behavior, uh, being familiar with the tools of therapy and knowing therapists um, and having a lot of uh, very based common sense. And he came with this like, let's just do it attitude. Like you go into the neighborhood with his little recorder and talking to these gangsters, essentially, like even like, I remember midnight on like New Year's or something, he was in the neighborhood at night, like in the thick of it, you know, um, talking to these like older teenagers who were on the side of the road, just on the corner, did you know, he doing recruit their thing. Some of that like recruit, but like, did he get some of the original kids involved in this program? Right, exactly. So, question, uh, real quick, just because I remember, did was he? And I don't know if this kid is still involved, but Oso. Yes, exactly. So that Oso, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. You're about to answer my question. Go for it. Yes. So Oso is an incredible person, and he's one of the people I made the shout out to. So he Oso is means bear, and that's just his nickname. His full name is Alberto uh, Amado. Cordoba, I'm pretty sure. Uh, they have four names usually in Mexico. And and basically, so he was one of the first kids that they approached because in their minds, in uh, Rory is his name, the guy, American, and Nadia, uh, they wanted to talk to the kids that were most vulnerable who were just starting to get into gangs. And so Osa was 14, and they went into this neighborhood that they had been pointed out to that as a smaller uh, pretty much like dangerous neighborhood, very impoverished and saw Oso on the, like with his little backpack selling paint thinner and his parents, he was there because his parents had, his dad basically disappeared. His mom died when he was a year old and he was staying with his grandparents. Um, but he had dropped out of school early. He was in a neighborhood where, you know, the, if you're not in school, you're hanging out on the street you're hanging out with the people selling drugs and just trying to get by themselves. You know, they're your friends because there's nobody else to go to. Um, and you're not going to leave your neighborhood because, you know, it could be dangerous or, you know, it's the other side that if you go just a little bit outside your neighborhood, there's like a nice neighborhood and you don't belong there or you feel like you don't. So, so also was like selling paint there, which is the cheapest thing you can get. It's just a couple of pesos and you get like a, they have this Coke bottle and they'll get this napkin wet or like you'll have your napkin with you and you you just get a little bit wet and then you huff it and you get high for a couple of minutes. And the nature of the chemical is that it basically kills your brain cells. It's just you're just huffing like straight this horrible chemical. And but that was the cheapest, most accessible thing because everybody in that neighborhood and their cousin worked in construction in non-skilled labor. So Oso's there, he's got his backpack and he's just like slinging paint thinner to get by and they're able to talk to him. And I don't know like the story, like 
all the details, but essentially they were like, yo, if you're sober, we can take you climbing. And that's what happened for like the first six months of the pilot project. They would go in and talk to Oso and, and his friends or his cousins and be like, okay, Hey, like if you stay sober, if you know, if you're clear minded, uh, we'll take you out to your local area, La Huasteca. And which so is also, beautiful, by the it's, way. It's amazing. Yeah. So this area is like right next to the like the city. Like you you're in the city, you go through this gate around this big rock fin, and boom, you're in this canyon with this epic four hundred meter, like nine hundred thousand foot wall in front of you. Yeah. Um, so, so like to put perspective on that for like, you know, because we're here in DFW and most people in Dallas are listening to this podcast. So uh, imagine going from downtown to Plano and then having 2000 foot walls, like just to yeah. climb around sport climb. And is this like trad and sport or is this kind of like adventure? It's a little bit of everything. <laughs> it's definitely adventure climbing. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard limestone, so you technically don't want to do a lot of trad. But given like the way that the old school climbers bolted it sixty years ago, seventy years ago, like they would just kind of do it mixed. Like they would put up a couple bolts where you had to, where it was, and then when it got super easy, you just run it out, and you've got some trad gear with you, and you'll plug it in just to like keep yourself safe. Um, but m- the majority of it is when you walk in and you just see this massive canyon is just sport climbing. So it's very accessible. There's like everything from like class four ridge climbing, which is super sketch to like five, nine. (laughs) Yeah. Because of the limestone, if you go up a ridge, there's blocks that you can just like throw off the side. Um, And it can be really sharp. It's this, it's got this crazy uh, texture where it's like, bulletproof but it looks like rain came down and just made these huge pockets so the top of the rock can be as sharp as like a tooth or a knife so it's so you can get into adventure climbing if you go anywhere off route or if you go on any multi-pitch um if it's not sheer uh or if you go up like the main face of independencia uh, which we've done with the kids, it's like, yeah, you don't touch all the rocks. And it's it's sport climbing, but adventure climbing. So it's, nice. but yeah, it's got like hundreds, probably thousands of routes. It goes on for miles inside the canyon and it's right there. So it's very accessible to the program. Yeah. So that's so, where, yeah. You know, that's just where I remember like actually, because Obviously, I do not speak Spanish. I wish I do. I'm doing my best on Duolingo. Um, nice. But, awesome. Uh, yeah. No, I've been like super excited about it. Um, but like, I just remember spending time with Oso, you know, and the little bit that we could communicate back and forth. Uh, I just, you know, it was it, it was it was weird in a way because it was my first time trying to talk to an adolescent with a huge language barrier and not being an adolescent myself, being oh my an gosh. adult. And right. It was the amount of genuineness in his voice and interest in me in general and just kind of love for climbing and then happy that I'm there. And I think that was the one thing that I remember him saying to me uh, that either you or uh, the director, uh, uh, she translated for me. And he was like, he was just super happy that I was actually even there to come down. Yeah, And that was just what made me like super psyched. And I just like he stands out so much and I'll never forget just sitting in that canyon 
we're in your van and you're like out there because you're trying to figure out where everybody is. And him and I are just like sitting in the back of your van. The doors are all open uh, and, you know, it's hot as hell. But we're just like trying to figure out and trying to have this conversation. And it was it was cool. And he was a real cool kid. And uh, but it was at that moment where I was like, I don't want to be in this situation again and not be able to at least hear his thoughts and hear what's going on with him. Like, you know, screw my story. I want to know what like like I want to know more about him. And oh, uh, in fact, yeah. yeah, actually, we had Sasha Turrentine just asked, actually, if she could do a piece on him for Alpinist. She was just just kicking it around. And but I realized that like Oso's story, we have in Spanish and we've translated like the basic to English. But his story is super interesting. And I want to hear that as well. And I really hope Alpinist chooses to go forward with that piece. I have and, an idea, but we'll talk about it yeah. after the show. Oh my God. Right. I, I want to sure. do something. Okay. Just so many ideas, head. right? Yes, yes. Yeah. All the things, all the things. Oh, all the things. So, so yeah. So you were one of those people who went down and, and you experienced this, that these kids were, you know, there is a huge language barrier. Even, even if you knew Spanish, they came from a, the, the lowest class in the city from an area where like very common with slums, their language it evolves to be its own. And so you almost create its own dialect. And that happens in like Rio de Janeiro too, where like they create their own dialect so that they, the cops don't understand them. And then so they they've got their own code. But so like Oso, when you're trying to talk to him, he's, he just knows like 500 words in his vocabulary, as opposed to like an educated person, like Nadia, the founders having like a couple thousand, like 15,000 words. And he's saying like, Ah, la chingada, wey. Eres una pendejada. Like with these insults too, but he means them very endearingly, and you and it's so hard to understand. But what I learned from them was that they communicated so well with like their expressions and their gestures and their like their enthusiasm. It's just like that the whole human connection you get around that what they're saying. So I could actually like I had to really connect with them and understand them. Um, through like the connection and less through the speaking because so like you actually I was just like you I went down in 2014 in March and I I did not know Spanish that well and I ended up spending four months with them um, not understanding almost anything of what they were saying <laughs> like and they were psyched to go climbing they were psyched that I was there but we would be driving in that van, Wally, the one you talked about, and mm-hmm. which was like this vehicle for us, this vessel for us to go like from one world to another. And we'd be trying to drive somewhere to a climbing gym and we'd get lost. And they're trying to tell me like, go left, go right, go straight. You know, this, I think it's this way. I had no idea what they're saying. And I would just be like, oh my God, like, <laughs> how can I connect with these kids? <laughs> I'm here to help. And like, I could bring oh, gear. Awesome. I can like, it was it was so comical and they would be saying stuff about me that if I, I knew if I could go back and listen to what they were saying, I'd be like laughing my ass off because they were like, Oh my God, this gringa, she has no idea. We're lost. We're never going to get there. And I'm just like, okay, they're giving me encouragement. All right, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that typical ironic, like, yeah, dramatic irony where, I, where I'm just enthusiastic and like gung ho, I'm going to do my thing, but not really connecting on a deeper level. And that didn't happen for like, a good six months until I could kind of have a conversation with them and it's still hard to understand them, but I could start to like, 
like what we really want, right, is to like to understand what they're saying on that deeper level and be able to respond correctly, Correct. right? Yeah, one hundred percent. Acknowledge what they're saying and their feelings, and then respond in a way that's meaningful and on that deeper level. I could not do that. I was so lost, and uh, and yeah. So over the past, over the three years that I was there, we had people like you come down, and they were just so stoked. They're like doesn't matter you know we're gonna go climbing we can just kind of figure out what's going on uh we just have to like visually see each other what they're doing with their hands and kind of pick up that vibe so for people listening to this like it how just real quick so we can get this out there so they know like how can someone support or get in touch or like just get involved with this like what are what's the avenue Right. So Escalona Fronteras, its mission is to, so that people know how to help, its mission is to empower at-risk youth through climbing and education. And originally we had people coming down like yourself who would bring you know, a camera and talk about the story and experience it and then bring that back to your community. Um, and currently what it's what we're doing right now is this can lead into climbing without borders with my own nonprofit is uh what we've been doing is we've and what i've been doing since the beginning i'll I'll just throw this in here um is bringing resources to this program like fundraising for specific campaigns um climbing gear which can be really expensive and is in fact more expensive when it's imported into countries like mexico um and also bringing services and um, research to that program. So what people can do is they can go to the website to kind of get an idea. It's You can look up escalandofronteras.org or translate the words climbingborders.org. Um, I think you can also type in climbingborders.org. Let me just check that. Um, no. Okay. So you got to write Escalona Fronteras or just translate climbing borders and you can get an idea of what we do. But then when it comes to bringing us resources, there is a PayPal button, but if people go to climbing without borders, which is my nonprofit, which was named in tribute to working with them originally and now still working with them, we have a campaign up right now because they, during COVID, um, Nadia, who is now running everything, she she and her husband, in fact, he's been helping her. Uh, he's now a director, too. They adapted to the needs of this neighborhood they work with. And as they can't be climbing currently, they all these families, when they went into the neighborhood, they said, well, we can't work. And we live day to day. Like, we go on the street with our corn, our dolls, our you know candy, whatever, and we sell that on the street and we and they've got the baby wrapped up on their back and they've got their kids doing the same thing running around the highway um in the sun you know with all the the heinous pollution and they go back and use that money to buy food and they could not because covid it modern mexico was kind of in a stay at home lockdown phase people did not want to just you know talk to a stranger and get you know, whatever from them out of their car, um, like from their window, you know? So they started a campaign and it's on our website, climbingwithoutboards.com and it's got a video and it's explaining the situation and has some video of them talking about their situation. And we have the progress of how many people 
we've helped. So essentially, we're receiving uh, donations of one dollar or more to pay for food to feed those families and those individuals that are vulnerable during lockdown during during the time where they can't get the, the food to survive. <clears throat> so that's one way that people can help. And even just a dollar pays for like food for an individual for a day, which is pretty big. Like uh, one dollar feeds one person per day. Yeah. And the pesos are getting really weak. So it's like just like the dollar is worth so much more. Um, okay. And then, yeah. And so we've got the whole campaign there. We've got like uh if they want to learn more about the program, I put the documentary, which is there. It's 18 minutes and it was made and circulated in major, um, cinemas in Mexico and then translated for film festivals. Um, and then I've got there, like you can also follow Escalona Fronteras on Instagram and Facebook. And I have those links there. Perfect. perfect. We'll share those in the show notes. Cool. Right. Cool. So yeah, so, and then that leads into kind of what I'm doing now. Uh, so I worked with Escalona Fortress for three years. And then when I, when everything was kind of sustainable, I left to help remotely while I was still like doing my own thing and established a nonprofit in the US that is a 501c3. And it's super cool. It's like, it's, it's basically taking what we were doing for that one program, which was collecting donations, collecting gear, uh, collecting resources and volunteers and everything, and and registering it in the U.S. so that we can give tax deductible receipts, so that we can increase what's coming in. We have like a warehouse in this gear store that we can house all the stuff and sort it. Um, and we... We primarily work with Escalona Fronteras in learning how to help these programs and creating resources so that we can help other programs just like them. And so on our website, you'll see the first campaign, which is what we have currently going on and where we've raised $2,000 for uh, or $2,500 for Escalona Fronteras to feed families. Nice. And then, yeah. And then if you scroll down, it's it'll show our impact from when we st- first started working with them. Um, bringing in gear and kind of working with other programs. And so I founded this with the help of the community. Like I could not have done it alone. Um, I'm just like a dirtbag rock climber. And I didn't even speak Spanish when I went down there. I just had to learn everything as I went. And then like a lot of people have volunteered, helped out. Like we had these, we had two high school students make this, like this thing actually get registered uh, they're from Carbondale. They came down uh, to help Escalona Fronteras. And I was like, kids, I want to make this in the US. I don't know how to do it. Registration fees are like 250 bucks. Let's just try to raise that much money and figure out how to do this. And they did that. They helped me with that. They did a lot of things oh, for that's Escalona awesome. Fronteras. Who are they? Yeah. Uh, Blake, uh, Finn, Finn Blake, Flynn Blake. Oh, shoot. I don't want to get his name wrong. And Tasha. Okay, that's and awesome. They're super cool kids. They're like, I've had, I've met the coolest people, got like yourself, come down to volunteer with the program. Um, and they, they just had a couple of weeks where their senior project for high school was to come help out, and I was like, perfect. You know, um, I can do the paperwork, and you can come check out, you know, the program. They came down, and we, we had the coolest program we sat in one of the 
cafes in one of the nearby climbing areas, El Salto, which is like world world, world famous life World class. Yeah. It's and it yeah. was such it's such a sleeper. I hope. Yeah. Um, so if anybody's listening, don't go to El Salto. It's terrible. Don't <laughs> climb there. Don't go there. It's, it's like just, it's so bad. It's like it's just oh that place. It's, I'm yeah, I'm in love. Many. Like literally, I <laughs> cannot wait to get back there. Oh, the place is beautiful climbing. Right. I've I've traveled to a lot of places and I very seriously considered living there. It's like a limestone paradise of sport climbing. Absolutely. It has yeah. It has this roof with big stalactites called uh, Cueva de Cumbia. You didn't get to see. No, it's I did not. Like but you told me about oh it. Oh my god. Oh my god. It's like this oh. horizontal roof with massive stalactites that you can't even wrap your arms around. So Anyways. like for people listening, imagine you know Rhymer's Ranch, but like with real rock climbing walls that are actually tall. And when you go into Sex Cave, but like just this thing big enough probably to fit a couple houses in and. Uh, that's basically what this cave is with tufas. And then the whole mountain range, it's just like covered with them. I remember when we were there yes. driving up, I'm sitting there looking at all these ranges away and I'm like, and you, and I'm like, there has to be climbing over there. And you were like, oh, there probably is, but it, it's too much work to get all the way over there. I'm like, says who? And these walls yeah. look amazing. Uh, but you yeah, I, I agree with you. I was like, I remember asking you, uh, trying to get information. I was like, how much does it cost to like buy a house here and just... I mean, I know they'll call me a gringo, but I don't give two shits. I would like to be here. And that place is yes. amazing. Yeah. But, it's, uh, what is know, the actual campground that's there? There is a place if people decide to go. Like, there's a place I know yeah. that you're supposed to stay, and I don't know that information. Right. Well, there's a couple of places. It's it's changed a lot. Like, Mexico's, it can be very unstable. Um, it, that area specifically is really uh it, it was like a rural mountain town before people started moving in there so if you wanted like papers to a property you they didn't exist you had to make them you had to talk to the guy who's trying to sell it who has two other brothers they share us with and then you talk to the whole community to make sure they're all on the same page and it's 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 getting better people wow. climbers have bought land um so like if but, I'm going to yeah. go there and climb though, like is there a particular campground or I'm, you're saying right. there's like a lot of places that have popped up? Right. So, well, it's interesting. So now the most, uh, the easiest place to really um, talk to, like they speak English as well, is Rock Camp, which is a campground with like a slack line and lots of space. They might have like 50 people there at once. Um, but really nice bathrooms and showers. And I think they're done with their room that they built. So they rent out a room. Um, and they have a nice kitchen, which I think they've been using to make food. And for a while, they're making really good pizzas. Uh, but it, that's been like the most developed climber central place. Um, and then uh, there's another place as well. Um but I th- I'm not too sure if it's still there. So basically Rock Camp. Like if you okay. look it up on Google, you can find it. And then when you get your Uber taxi, you know, Uber it up to the town and then taxi your way up to the <clears throat> this tiny little rural town, you can walk down the road to uh, almost all the way through town. And then you'll see a little sign that's on the right side that says Rock Camp. Oh, nice. And it's right around the corner. Yeah. Awesome. 
Yeah. So, I mean, apart from that, there are cabins. It's been growing like crazy. There's a bunch of cabins. Like, they they look like chalets, like log cabins, which huh. is really strange. Uh, oh, I it's remember not- that. We passed by them on the way up. I remember seeing that, yeah. actually. I was really surprised because it was just like out of nowhere, there's these random log cabins. And it's like – Yeah. Yeah. I remember that being very odd. Yes. There's a lot of international influence because this is close to this industrial monster city of Monterey. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of international business there from all the mining and minerals and manufacturing. And so you go up and you find like these German looking little or or like Spanish influenced or like um, Swiss influenced like little cabins that are being built really quickly. Um, So yeah, if you did search El Salto, and then camping, you'll find a lot of different uh, places. And some of them are really expensive per night. It'll be like 50 bucks. And you're like, what the heck? Like this used to be like five bucks a couple years ago. Um, but once you get in there or if you speak Spanish, you can go to different places and say, hey, is there a cheaper option? Uh, um, so you can haggle a little bit. Yeah, you can kind of – yeah, like okay. you – yeah, and then Kika's is also pretty um, popular as far as renting rooms. It's the, like the store and the woman who runs it is like the matriarch of the whole place. She's ah. this amazing old woman. Um, her whole family surrounds her and the women are all working and controlling everything. It's super cool. That's and awesome. they've got a couple of rooms. Yeah, and they're camping. Actually, their camping is what I prefer. I, I was trying to think of it, but I couldn't – Basically, they have their store, and then in the back, they've got, like, a communal kitchen, and on the side, they have camping. There's not as much space, and it can be a little bit louder at night, like, yeah, the but locals, like... In my opinion, if you're not camping with earplugs, then you're you're making a rookie <laughs> mistake, so that's just me. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Like, New Year's, it's just incredible. Like, they... The Mexicans really love their fireworks and I, loud noises. And I think cumbia. everyone likes to. I think everyone likes fireworks. I think everyone likes things blowing up a little bit. I mean, I yeah. do. Fourth of July was great. So, <laughs> um, yeah. But I mean, you will get like parties that go late into the night um, until like four a.m., five a.m. Yeah. with you know because of a wedding or because and they drink. There's a huge drinking problem. So you you get there and. You you might not be able to sleep if you don't have earplugs. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. For sure. So I have a quick question. I want to. I kind of want to backtrack to like you moving into Colorado. So like you're. This is where you are now, currently living. Um, yeah. And so like, what are you? You know, before we got started here, we were talking briefly about like your current adventures and current things that you're doing uh, now. Uh, and so I guess like, is it, it, you know, what, like what inspires you now? Like you came from competition rock climbing, you've done trad, you've done sport, you've done everything right now. So like, is there anything that you kind of have your sights set on that you're trying to either learn or do or something that you're kind of going for? Because you're, I mean, luckily during this pandemic, you are in the one place that every rock climber wishes they were at that is not in <laughs> right. Colorado. So is it all right if I take a quick bathroom break and then I'll think about this.
boys and girls. I want to thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate you guys taking your time to listen to my show. I'm still new at this. I'm learning tips and tricks. Um, so yeah, thank you guys for being here. I want to take a moment to thank my sponsors, Beyond Clothing. These guys outfit me for all my adventures, all my gear. And I'm not just saying this. I think their clothes is amazingly superior and ahead of everyone else. And most importantly, they're a small company, so they actually listen to your own feedback. If you guys get a chance, check them out. Go to beyondclothing.com. If you decide to buy anything, please use the promo code always ready. Once again, that is always ready. Just type that in and you know, you save a little money and I donate the money to good things. So appreciate you guys and check out the next episode because we're jumping right back in it.